Colonel Hologram, this is Salad Suter. I'm in position for the mission. What are your orders? Salad Suter, your mission is simple. You are to infiltrate the command structure of Voyager at all costs. Locate the high priority target, Seska, and terminate with extreme prejudice. Seska? But Colonel, she's consistently the only good thing about the show. She practically saved season two all by herself. Soldier, I don't want to hear any of that thinking for myself bullshit. These orders come from the top, from President Jerry Taylor herself. You will move forward with the mission, and you will terminate the target. Do you understand? <sighs> yes, Colonel. Suter? Suter? Welcome to V'ger, please! A hateful voyage through the Delta Quadrant, back in our traditional formation, located some many miles away from each other. This is Joseph. Hey there, it's Peter. And, uh, Peter, does it feel good to be back in the swing, rocking those episodes out? How, how you doing, man? Feels weird, man. This is the first uh, traditional episode we've done in a while. Uh, we had the, the dual cast for Threshold. And then we had the season two rip before that. So being back in my main broadcast area feels pretty good. Yeah, same here, man. And nothing quite like some piping hot garbage that we got served up to us nice and fresh, but, you know, garnished with some quality just to to confuse the palate <laughs> to start season three off strong, I guess. Uh, what, what, what would we watch, man? Season three, episode one, basics, part two. So there are three distinct storylines in this episode, and uh, they don't interact with each other. So I would like to try and tackle them independently because that way we can kind of explore the explore the uh, the the performance space a little bit. You know, I want to do that because this is really this the the episode of two distinct storylines of different kinds of quality um you've you've got the tom stuff which is kind of immaterial because there isn't much of it you have the stuff that happens on voyager which is awesome and then you have the stuff on the planet which is poop it's startling to me how much better the shit on the show on the on the ship was versus what's on the planet like i i had to look up to see if this had more than one writer because i was convinced while i was watching it that there had to have been two writers and someone with talent was doing the stuff that was on the ship and then you know jerry taylor was doing what was on the planet <laughs> yes her stench was all over this episode wasn't it yeah i guess in a way that we'll we'll see unfortunately at the end but let's knock something out first and that is uh the best part of the episode oh you want to go best first huh oh yeah let's do that let's start with the strength and then we can just descend into the into the crap and and then just just let her rip with as many ball kicks as we possibly can 
I mean, this is actual season three production footage, right? This isn't like we did it at the end of season two and we held it over. Like this is top of the season, new season money, new production budget and everything else. Uh, yes, that is my now, my belief. And uh, from what I was reading on the Memory Alpha, uh, they did basics one, not knowing what the resolution was going to be and basically just went into the writer's room fresh six weeks after basics aired and was like, okay, how are we going to fix this? That's my understanding. Mm. Well, they did not do a good job. No, they didn't. This is the best they could do. Um, and well, you know what? Let's start with the good part. Cause there is just a fantastic 15 ish minutes here, you know? And that is what happens on the ship. So when we last left our heroes, there were two, count them, two useful Starfleet people, kind of people, on the ship. The Doctor and everyone's favorite, you know, murder pipe champion, Lon Suter. The Betazoid who can't feel feelings, who's gone through a lot of like kung fu training with with uh tuvok to get his murder impulses under control yeah a lot of tai chi and two and um Suter got jailbroke by the suicide bomber kazon guy kind of on accident and we saw him kind of crawling through the jeffrey's tubes on the loose at the end of the episode and the doctor managed to sort of duck uh, immediate detection and and try and game plan a solution by turning himself on automatically some 12 hours later or something like that so that's all that's left on the ship and we get a ton of fantastic content between the two of them first you've got the doctor and what he does is something we have never seen on this show to date and you know what that is uh, have AI actively contemplate violence? I was going to say lie to Seska successfully multiple times. Also that, yeah. So Tuvok gets hot game run on her, got run on him all the time by her. 24-7, 365. Yeah, Chakotay, it's like Seska 50, Tuvok negative two. Yeah. Yeah, Tuvok, uh, uh, Chakotay, too, too baby crazy to see straight he's had some wins but they've been like marginal wins that he had to get bailed out of by the rest of voyager throwing hail marys mm. janeway who constantly makes terrible decisions and that's why the ship got trapped because she is the trap queen seska's got all these people's numbers none of them can beat her none, mm -hmm. none of them can even successfully lie to her I'll throw Paris a bone on that one. Paris does Paris does uh, successfully kind of, I don't say lie, but so much as conceal his intentions in the one scene they want. They do have. That's true. But the doctor straight out hoodwinks her twice. They dumbed Seska down a little bit in this episode. I think there are some real rookie mistakes she uses. Like if she comes in and she's got full use of the ship's computers, the fact that, uh, what, it's 12 hours that they're on the ship before 
the doctor rematerializes and uh, does a basically a situation assessment and asks the computer, you know, what is the current crew complement? And that's when the computer system says, well, you got like 80 some K's on, which <laughs> I really like the face poem he does when he hears what the enemy numbers are. Uh, and then, you know, identifies that there's a beta Z. And that's when he figures out that it's Suter. And to think that at no point Sesco would have been like, hey, computer, are there any members of the remaining crew here or anything else that, you know, anybody else that might be on the ship that could be a problem? Like, that's a real oversight, I think, for someone as conniving as she is. I completely agree. I also thought that was dumb. I thought it would have been so much easier for Suter just to pop in into sickbay and have fooled that himself somehow. I mean, clearly we see just later on that he's got tricks like that. Yeah. But uh, I loved where it started, which is the doctor going into the mode that Seska would have remembered from the last time they interacted, which would have been from her perspective, you know, season one. Yeah. So she rolls into the the sick bay and she actually calls him up because she wants her baby looked at with, you know, the hot shit Federation technology. And yeah, he's completely indifferent to everything going around, or so she thinks. Yeah, she, he plays up his essential lack of um, caring about who's in charge, that he's just an automaton there to do medicine, and therefore he doesn't care who's in charge of the ship, which it's him playing into Seska's expectations of what he is like. It's also a really neat moment for the Doctor character because... They have never really like they focused on his emotional growth and uh, they focus on his exploration of his own wants and desires and that, you know, he's more than just a cardboard cutout. Right. But they don't ever specifically address the fact that he has crew loyalty or a sense of family or anything other than a very professional relationship with the people around him. They don't say he doesn't. But they don't ever say there's never like a transition episode that he does. And seeing him play the old hand really stands as a stark contrast compared to where he was, you know, where we know he's at. You are absolutely right. It's a great way to subtly yet quite specifically show how his character has evolved already, that he has an emotional attachment to his people, his family, his crew. and. That he is aware of how far he has come and can assume his prior persona to deceive someone. All of that without addressing it directly in one scene. When they bring, you know, when he self-activates on that 12-hour mark and does that situational assessment, there's no internal conflict for him of like, oh gosh. His conflict is how do I fix this? Not do I care? Is this something that really matters to me? Like he doesn't have to cover any of that ground. He's instantly like he's playing for team Janeway right off the bat. And his, uh, like I said, his struggle is like, how am I going to possibly fix this? And what surprised me, and it's what, you know, I just threw out there before he jumps right into, you know, how do I murder these people? What tactical databases do I have to access? Stop and think about this for a second. You've got AI that is, you know, shackled by his uh, 
Hippocratic Oath or whatever. You know, he wanted no part of the Tuvix business. Mm-hmm. He objected to it. And this dude wastes no time and just like, well, it's going to be necessary to murder things and get them off the ship. And how am I going to do that? And I was like, wow, that is. That seems like quite the glaring hole in some programming there, unless Federation has a provision that, you know, push comes to shove these these ship systems can uh, go murder time. It Um, could be. I mean, there could be that there's some part of his program that's allowing him to sort of unlock this capacity on the basis of an emergency prize. Super not Federation. It kind of addresses some of the of stuff that we talked about, I think, with uh, with Threshold, which is he's confronting something he doesn't know how to do, which is uh, what do I do? Do I summon up uh, holograms of Che Guevara? You know, I'm a I'm a doctor, not a counterinsurgent. As we've talked about before, too, and I think there were some missed opportunities here. Certainly we've talked about at length the power in the hologram technology that Voyager has given uh, this show. The Voyager, you know, writing room has given this show to the point where you could just have dudes walking into sick bay and you could just materialize bullets right in their brain or, you know, basically holographic cancer in their face. <laughs> that is a Welcome lovely to my death. death chamber. I've given you ass death cancer. Fucking gas chamber. Hey, dudes, just walk in and there's a security field over the door and now you're all breathing the Tom Paris a uh, lizard man cocktail. Like, <laughs> Here, have some Tom Paris's lizard stank. They'll turn you to a gibbering, you know, amphibian on the floor in 24 hours. He could have uh, infected the ship with the uh, cheese plague again. There's a lot of there's a lot of devious things I think he could have done. And I understand why they didn't, because ultimately you've got Suter in the cut waiting to play out. But um I think it was kind of a scary moment to see just what the the doctor is really capable of in certain situations. I I wish they do as the season prog- seasons progress explore more and more of the doctor as an AI like mm-hmm. very directly and so I'm looking forward to those episodes. I don't think his capacity for violence is necessarily an aspect that gets the close lens in, but you're right. I mean, he move straight to I have to defeat these Kazon uh, to win the day for my dudes. How am I going to violence them from here? <laughs> and as if by some sort of, of epiphany, he thinks, okay, who's on the ship? And may ask the question, as you noted, and that there's a Betazoid. And he's like, wait, who? who's the Betazoid? <laughs> and it's Lon Suter. And there's this look on his face of like, just the motherfucker I wanted to hear. (laughs) Like, yes, we are in business. Yeah, absolutely. Not a bad pick of uh, people to be left behind. He gets in touch with him on the communicator and uh, ultimately uh, covers Suter's tracks in the computer to make sure no one else can find him. And then says, get GTFO to sickbay. We got to huddle up and figure out what the fuck we're going to do. Another interesting point here, um, the EMH has like massive command override authority. Wasn't there an episode where he got the Voyager command codes like entrusted to him? Yes, there was. What was the, it? It was the episode when they were dealing with the nebula that was uh, 
secretly filled with evil aliens and Chakotay was like space ghosting. Mm, Chakotay, and, uh, Oregon Trail. Astro yeah, Oregon, Oregon Trail, Trail, yeah. That was a good episode. Um, yeah, so did, he transferred that all back over. Do you think that at some point Janeway bumped up his security clearance to allow him to take a step this drastic? Like, stop and think how many times Data hijacked the Enterprise right. and how easy it was for him to do that. Um, you would think at a certain point, Starfleet's kind of like, you know, <laughs> again, the the AI scare or whatever, like maybe maybe we don't just give these guys the key to the castle by default. You know, I assume that for the doctor, maybe it was just a matter of something that uh, anyone can request. So as long as no one noticed that he asked for it, like maybe his clearance isn't high enough to 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 cover his tracks, but he can make the request to the computer be like, hey, don't tell anybody that fucking suitors here. The computer be like, "Okay, I won't. And then. You know, if if Maj Kahlo has the command codes and goes, hey, is there anybody here? And he goes, no. But you can see that someone's like asked that not to be revealed and be like, well, no, tell me that fucking shit. Like it could be that kind of situation that like he doesn't have the command codes to override everyone from knowing. But he he can put it like a like just like a a fucking ghost, like a sheet over it. Sure. <laughs> you know, like no one look. What was Beverly? She, Lieutenant Commander? Uh she was, was a she, full commander. She was a full commander. It was it was it was Troy who was a lieutenant commander, and then it was that whole thing in the I think it was the seventh season when she promoted. Oh what well, yeah, you're right, it was seventh season. I don't know. I think uh maybe they're due to throw him so, uh, something just to kind of cover contingencies like this, but Well, there turns out that there's episodes exactly about this later. So don't worry. Keep yourself locked in. Uh so he calls Suter to come down. Suter pops out the side hatch. And uh, there's a pretty good exchange where, you know, doctor's already in business mode. Like, hey, uh, here is what we're going to have to start doing to try and turn this thing around. And uh, first is going to be acquiring weapons. And he sees that Suter's kind of like drifting off in the distance and, and not paying very keen attention. And the doctor mistakes this detached look on Suter for, uh, you know, Islan pondering going AWOL and just taking advantage of this disaster to not be in prison anymore and go about his merry way. The emotional depth that the uh, the actor that that plays Lon Suter brings to the table in this episode is is really palpable. Um had to actually look it back up. Brad Dordriff is Dorf. the the uh, Chucky is yeah. he uh, a lot's riding on his shoulders in these Voyager scenes that a lesser actor would not have been able to convey in quite the same way. And his detachment is, as he goes on to explain, not because he is considering joining up with the Kazon to get his freedom, but that. He is recognizing that if they're going to get out of the situation, he's going to have to do things that he has tried so desperately to suppress and control in himself. And that is the capacity for violence, because let us not forget, this is the 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 crazy town motherfucker who murdered a guy just because he wanted to. 
Like he's, he has the he has the Dahmer urge. Like I wanted to murder someone, so I murdered that guy, and I don't feel bad about it. That's that was an introduction to Lon Suter. Like all of the the Maquis officers were like, uh, he was a little crazy. He had a little bit of the murder eye in him, but you know we were terrorists, so we were big. You know beggars can't be choosers. And it turns out he was really bad. And now we got a lawn suitor that is, as he goes on to explain to the doctor, feels close to overcoming being that guy. He's not there yet. He knows he's not there yet. He had a real awkward moment with the captain in the prior episode. But he can see the day coming. That's what he says. I can see the day coming. I think that's my favorite. That's my favorite line out of this entire episode easily. You know, it's not that, hey, I am at peace with myself. It's that he recognizes, you know, he's got that self-awareness. Yeah, um, that's what makes it so powerful. And I think you've got a lot of different energy in this scene because Picardo, you know, uh, the EMH is very, like I said, very quick to get the wheels turning on this. And I think that Brad Dourif does a really good job creating this gravity well and just slowing the entire scene down to this very thoughtful pace where he's able to flesh these concepts out and really let you as the viewer feel this conflict he's got inside of him. And it comes across clear. And I would say it's very easy to feel some, some genuine pity for this character who is would be easy. in any other hands just to kind of characterize as a jokey psycho uh, laugh opportunity and you know instead portray him as someone who you know gosh darn it really is trying yeah that he uh he's flawed he knows how flawed he truly is and he can see so clearly how close he is to getting to where he wants to be but now that's all going to be brought into question the doctor is like listen bro i'll be with you every step of the way but we got to do this it's just you and me. You don't have a choice. So he's not caring too much about the psychological well-being of Lon Suter. He he wants to do the job and get his get his crew back home. And uh, Lon Suter is going to be his agent in doing that. I don't know, man. I think I don't think the EMH feels good about it. Uh, I agree that you know he's got a can-do attitude and agenda that he pushes, but I think that there is a a genuine recognition that there's some anti-medicine going on here. And he's got a line I really like. I think he drops it here, but it's like, uh, you know, we might one, uh, one hologram and one sociopath may not be much, but we're all, we've got to do the job or something along the lines of, you know, yeah, he says that there. Yeah. One hologram or one sociopath. And it's like, that's, that's a place that you wouldn't really think you would be in a Star Trek show. It gets better from here, in my opinion. Um, I know you, that conversation might have been your favorite, but it's the it's the next sequence that follows that's mine. Because what happens is, is that Suter does the Maquis thing and starts to fuck with ship in the ship. And we see the Kazon and Seska trying to deal with the consequences of it, thinking that it's just like shit that's broken on the ship they didn't fix right, or it's just their incompetence. Because the ship gets brought out of warp and they're trying to figure out what's wrong. Well, Seska thinks there might be some kind of intruder, but they, she doesn't have evidence. 
And while this is going on, we've got Kazon crews that are starting to crawl through Jeffrey's tubes trying to see what's going on. It really is an ideal situation for Starfleet at this point because having, you know, the 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 lone agent of Starfleet to try and turn the tide against us be a very effective, very skilled and very ultimately ruthless Maquis terrorist is, you know, putting a little kid in the candy shop. And between the doctor and Suter, they run hot game all over Voyager. And I do. do, I enjoy the scene, like the chaos it's sowing because the Kazon, they think they've won. So they're effectively creating infighting. Now, as Seska's like rampaging through engineering, you got dudes like half in the floor, half out trying to, you know, pull apart relays and this and that with exponentially growing problems of issues that look like it's stemming from a lack of maintenance being conducted by this Kazon crew. End result of the chaos is that Suter gets his opportunity to take someone out as the as the limited amount of Kazon crew filter through all of the Jeffries tubes looking for problems. And they don't show him take the guy out. What they do instead is they show the, the Kazon crew member kind of going through Jeffrey's tube. And then, then they just show Lon Suter come into frame like at, in the wall next to it. Because he's sort of like eyes where this guy is. And he's got this look on his face of, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to go do it. And then the scene ends. And the way they reveal what happened is that Suter comes back to sickbay he looks a mess not physically just like emotionally destroyed and the doctor's like oh mr suter you've done a great job you've done this and the 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 doctor suddenly realizes that suter has brought home like like a cat has brought home the mouse he has caught and dragged this kazon body dead dude that Lon Suter evidently killed with his bare fucking hands or maybe a pipe mm-hmm. and drag it back. Cause he didn't know what else to do with it. He didn't want to leave it there. And then the way he says it is perfect to me. This is my favorite line where he grimly says, now I have weapon. Now I have a weapon. Like now I have, now I have the weapon you thought I needed to get. I, yeah. I got it. You said, uh, he brought it home like a cat bringing home a gift. I was going to say, you know, he brought that guy back like, Lon Suter putting a dead body in a service, Jeffrey, but uh, <laughs> that might be a little too specific to this scene. Um, yeah, you know, Suter is not doing good with this. He gets out, he kind of collapses and has like this emotional paralysis. Uh, doctor tries to drug him up and he's like, no, I need to, I need to face the music on this one with a clear head. Um, guilt's weighing very heavy on him. It's a, it's a very plausible 180 from the lawn suitor that we saw, you know, openly confessing uh, indifferently to the murder of a Federation person for no reason. Um, and during Seska's grilling of uh, Kazon lackeys down in engineering, um, she sees uh, a pattern developing here of how these systems are failing and puts the uh, order out start doing a deck by deck sweep 
using Federation tricorders to try and locate these guys. Yeah, uh, that, that's that's ultimately what leads to Suter getting his opportunity to to fucking get a guy. Yeah, but uh, the threat of these tricorder sweeps escalates things in the Maquis playbook to taking some sort of a portable radiation generator that will irradiate areas in ways that it will make tricorders uh, unable to scan for life signs. We should also point out that we had a bomb dropped by the doctor uh, the first time Seska and the doctor talked. That is, the baby is not Chakotay's, and that is actually a surprise to Seska. Not only is that a surprise to Seska, that is a surprise to Martha Hackett. This script apparently changed two or three times. Uh, and one of the last minute changes to come was this uh, Chakotay, not the daddy thing, which seems like it got panned pretty hard by the crew. And it does feel like a huge cop out that the, you know, a, the entire premise of this fucking uh, predicament has now been swapped after the fact. The baby does look very clearly human. And they, you know, try to hand wave it away with a, well, we've never seen a Cardassian and a Kazon baby before. Like, of course it would look human. Like what? Um, and, you know, really just gets Chakotay off the hook and more or less can create another bottle homeostasis situation where there's no lingering side effects of any of this stuff. Because now, you know, Chakotay is not going to be shoved in Worf's shoes of, hey, unintentional dad. I maybe it's because they already have Naomi Wildman, Samantha Wildman's child. They didn't want to do like a second baby, I I guess. I don't know. Um, I agree that it seems weird that uh, they decide to go the route of, hey, surprise, Seska, this really isn't Chakotay's kid. And then that's just kind of the end of it. It's not discussed from that point forward, Um, particularly at the end. I'll tell you what else. Again, which I'm going to fucking get to. Yeah, but I'll tell you, one other, did you see the other script revision on this? Her baby was supposed to die. Yeah, it was her baby dies and Seska lives, right? Uh, there were a couple different ones, but the, the heavy lean was that they were going to kill the baby off to really, really punish Seska. That was Michael Piller um, who wanted to go for that. And uh, Jerry Ryan and... I think Berman were both like, no, no, that's that's too dark. And, you know, killing babies isn't what Star Trek's about. And this was a pillar's last touch, like not touch, but this was the last actual Voyager episode that he was really involved in. Um, and I think that's probably going to be for worse once Jerry gets a, a bigger slice of the pie here. But uh, the, the whole baby thing's kind of wonky. I did enjoy watching Seska have to come to terms that you know, this this guy, she's been blowing smoke up his ass and, you know, stroking his ego that he actually is the real father. And she didn't, despite her best efforts, manage to conceive Chakotay's baby. Meanwhile, uh, you know, they're they're starting to put together an actual plan because Tom, I guess we'll cover this briefly. Tom successfully got away in a shuttlecraft. Uh, there's one cool thing he gets to do in the entire episode. Murder. Tom Paris. Tom Paris pulls a top gun. Yeah. 
he flies directly into the danger zone straight up he's like they have this shot where he is desperately trying to use a fucking wrench on some piece of the of the shuttlecraft to keep it together because he's just been fighting Kazon and then another Kazon patrol vessel comes in and starts shooting at him and he starts bitching and moaning how he doesn't have the time to deal with it so he throws his wrench down and just just shows how fucking completely shitty the Kazon technology is right like once and for all this damaged beat up type 9 shuttlecraft Gets into the pilot seat, throws the brakes on, gets behind it, and while continuing to bitch that he doesn't have time for this, just murders all of those caissons. Just kills the shit out of all of them. Like, four phaser shots, blows it up, and it's like, all right, I'm going to go back to fixing this shit now that I'm done killing these people. Pretty potent scene there, too. Um, There's a lot of death in this episode, and, uh, you know, you start off with the doctor jumping right into murder bot mode. You know, Tom doesn't strand these guys and leave them adrift or whatever. It's it's a pretty clear like, fuck you. I'm not <laughs> captain's not here to see what's going on. My hair is a mess. I'm very clearly uh, cosplaying a murder hobo right now and uh, see you in the next life, motherfuckers. He is just so tired of dealing with this shit that he is just going to kill anyone that gets in his way if he can justify it and complain about it, which is what he does. He uh, eventually reaches the Talaxians that we covered in our last normal episode. We're never established to actually have a reason to want to help Voyager at all. In fact, Voyager's antics in using sensor hologram shit to make it look like they're helping and thus endangering them of reprisals would seem to be a reason that they wouldn't want to help. Well, but they don't fi- know. They don't know that they've been identity thefted. That's true. But he finds them. Busted it out on him. He does find him, and it's like, you have to help us. And the Talaxian commander's like, but I don't want to. That would be terrible and dangerous. And then Tom says, "Come on." And the guy's like, "All right, fine." That is really all the interaction is. Do the math here. The Kazon are already a huge threat to Talaxians. The Kazon are arguably neutral. You know, they didn't just genocide the crew of the ship that uh, Tom was hiding on back in uh, a lot or whatever, you know, what was that episode? Whatever. When Tom was hiding on the Talaxian ship. Right, right, right. Yeah. The 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 detective snarf snarf episode. Yeah. So investigations. So you take. All of the threat that the Kazon are to the Talaxians. Now factor in the fact that Voyager's not around to, you know, help the Talaxians to whatever degree they may have before. And furthermore, Voyager is in the hand of the Kazon, so the Kazon are like a hundred times worse and openly broadcasting that they have, you know, Voyager and that they are the baddest motherfuckers in the galaxy. Like it makes zero fucking sense for the Talaxians to throw in with the huge losers federation and risk, you know, being conquered by these Kazon guys. Didn't the Talaxians get conquered once? They did by a, a, a alien race that essentially Hiroshima one of their planets. We I don't all, know if we, it was essentially, I mean, I think it was pretty clear. It was specifically. Pretty <laughs> yeah, it was pretty specifically. You're right. You're right. You, 
you you're right. It's interesting though too to see that the Talaxians are able to operate autonomous of because they got occupied after that, didn't they? Whatever. I don't want to get into fucking Talaxian galactic <laughs> history. At the end of the day, it makes zero sense for these Talaxians to back Tom, some some dude who managed to get away from the fight they lost, his hair all fucked up, stinking of death and murder. Like Tom should have been like, uh, no, thanks, but no thanks. See you later. I agree, but they just go like, eh, fine, sure, we'll help. Seems good. That's what happens. The, they, he ends up coming back with the Talaxians, and he radios in via codec to uh, Colonel Hologram and says, hey, we got a plan. The plan is I need you guys to overload the backup phaser couplings, and you need to do it right when the fight starts. That's the plan. I'm going to do the rest. Do that. The doctor gets the plan and and we assume relays that to Suter in some way, although we don't I don't think see them discuss it. No, and it's also worth saying that the message that they get from Tom isn't, you know, a two way uh, video conference. Tom pre-records a message and hides it under some bogus Kazon signal. Before so, perhaps so, so, the, so Tom doesn't even know, by the way, that the EMH is even functional at this point and that there's anybody on Voyager who is Federation friendly and listening to his desperate plea for help. He he, he basically just does it on a, the chance that it would work. Yeah. Eventually, Suter makes his way back to the doctor but what has happened in the interim is that seska has figured out some shit is up because her lackeys report back to her that the radiation signature they're detecting is making uh everything difficult and seska of course knowing all about terrorist uh tactics having been infiltrating them for the obsidian order says that's an old maquis tactic we got a fucking problem marches down to the doctor and sniffs out that he's somehow involved with what's going on because he doesn't have the radiation generator that would be able to be used to create that signal. And the second, I guess you could say boss moment of the doctor uh, for the episode is he manages to lie to Seska a second time in taking credit for all of the chaos the ship has under undergone uh, while they have been in command of it without implicating that anybody was helping him, um, including taking credit for murdering someone, which Seska readily accepts. Well, based on the behavior we saw out of the doctor at the top of the episode. Um, yeah, sure. This dude's willing to fucking kill. Maybe she's aware of some Federation, you know, some uh, Section 31 protocols that uh, you and I aren't. Uh, I, I did like her saying, you know, why did you irradiate the Jeffries tubes with this Maquis tricorder, you know, cloak and, uh, you know, his answer that, oh, well, you know, how much manpower hours have I just wasted with you guys combing the ship needlessly? The the, the smug satisfaction that he takes in like, yes, he gave me no choice in the fact that I murdered him. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Uh, I did like the hammy nature of it that he's not maybe good at it, but it's working well enough in that circumstance. And he also recognizes the fact that, you know, the jig is up and that Seska is going to kill him one way or the other, which I think is why he really makes sure that he tries to pull as much blame onto himself. And in the process, successfully keeping Seska from wondering, is there really a second operator? Um, And he sells it that, you know, it, it was him. It was him, Austin, all along. And uh, as she's leaving, she pops her head back into sick bay and says, you know what? I'm tired of your bullshit. And she takes a shot at a server box on the wall that is, you know, some part of the EMH control program and kills a doctor. Yeah, he she just takes a phaser to the uh, control panel. Um, there's no discussion of any damage to the doctor as a consequence. It was mostly, I think, just to make sure he could be turned back on or or what have you. But he's he's out of commission. Um, you know, that's made very clear. And I think also at that point, she removes all Federation. She, like she super locks the systems on, which again, it, it seems very sloppy for Seska that she would not have completely locked out all Federation access previously. Um, but, uh, Suter comes back and tries to reactivate the EMH, his Federation, not that Suter should have Starfleet access at all at this point, being a prisoner, uh, but it gets denied under this new Kazon protocol. Uh, and in the process, the attempt to summon the doctor that fails uh, plays a, uh, what do we used to call those? You know, when you're, when you're the, the dead man drop, dead drops. Oh, dead drops. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So it plays this dead drop message from the doctor that's like, uh, you know, if you're hearing this, it means that uh, I've been killed. While you were gone, we were contacted by Paris. And, uh, you know, here is what we need to do to um, play along with a larger crew effort to recover Voyager. You need to go down and take out these weapon systems. Um, I know this shit's weighing heavy on you. Uh, You're a real boss. And uh, not only can you do the job, but uh, I've already filed reports to go to Chakotay and Janeway when they get back on about, you know, how exceptional you've been under duress. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of the last pep talk that you can give just to here's a little little you can do it, buddy. I believe in you. You know, you, this, you are the key to our salvation. The entire time, Suter has not looked comfortable with this, and this is no different. He does not like that he is left now alone to do this, but it doesn't stop him because the very next scene, we see him come out of uh kind of a hide hideaway in the engineering section. And they start the scene by giving you this long panning shot to where he is. And then you can see there's a lot of dudes in engineering right now. And this is some boss shit. He comes out, kind of sneaks around a corner. No one's seen him yet. And he steadies himself like emotionally and then rolls in and then just murders like 10 dudes. Like, boom, 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 boom. It's probably the most intense one man killing other dudes in Star Trek I've seen. 
Full on killing, yes. Uh, you know, this is the line uh, from Samuel L. Jackson when you positively, absolutely have to kill every motherfucker in the room. Um, the kill count in engineering has to be in the double digits at this point. If there is such a fact, uh, such a thing as as space ghosts <laughs> in in Star Trek. This engineering deck has to be the most haunted place on any Federation ship. You've got everybody from Jonas to whoever Lon popped in the head, all these Kazon dudes. I mean, it is just a murder gallery. And yeah, Lon comes in hot, guns a-blazing, drops everybody in engineering before going over to this uh, control panel for the redundant phaser systems and starts keying stuff in. But... He didn't have the uh, phaser rifle turned up to the highest kill setting because, unfortunately, one of these guys is still alive by the grace of stupid Jerry Taylor. Yeah, he's able to take a pot shot uh, and hit Lon in the back as he's keying in the sequence to complete whatever Paris wanted. Uh, And there he dies slumped over on the floor yet another death in main engineering. I do like that they give you a wide enough shot after he's done wiping everybody out that you can see how much dirt he just did. And he he's bro- still, again, broken, but he's doing his job. Um, I guess it's worth pointing out now that the whole reason his character dies in this scene is that Jerry Taylor just did not want to use him again. I'm going like, to read you a quote here. Um, because I think you really need to to hear it to fully grok just how terrible this situation is. Michael Piller wanted the character of Alon Suter, whom Piller had created earlier in the second season to survive the events of this episode. But Jerry Taylor was uninterested in further developing the character, who is consequently many one of the many who die in the episode's final moments. Piller commented, it's a real wipeout. Jerry never cared for Suter and had no interest in developing him in any further. So there's no point in keeping him alive. And a dramatic arc to uh, is fully realized by having the death occur at the end of part two. Uh, you know that it's a heroic sacrifice. Um, according to Jerry Taylor herself, the decision to have Suter killed was made because the writers couldn't see how he could really be redeemed. And he was simply too difficult to integrate with the other characters believably and well. What a crock of bullshit that is. Absolutely. That's infuriating to hear. That's infuriating. Is Jerry Taylor an idiot? Is she a, a, a second grade reading comprehension? Like, if you got one person that you have brought up from, from the minor league crew selection here that I think really deserves to be fully integrated into the main cast and has earned a place... Uh, as someone who is interesting and engaging and deep and thoughtful and a little outside the box enough that, you know, they fulfill the promise uh, of the Maquis conundrum, it's Lon Suter. And to just fucking squander him at this point, like, man, what the fuck? Now, nah, man, I, I'm with you. Um, it does feel like Jerry Taylor is part of a different show. I mean... This episode demonstrates how redeemable and interesting Suter could be. In fact, that the fact that he would come back from being Jeffrey Dahmer to being this emotionally deep and damaged and 
you know, soul being sort of reconstructed. And it just, she's just like, nah, fuck it. Let's throw it in the garbage. It sucks, but I am satisfied in the sense that they at least gave him as good an ending as they could in this episode. You know, and again, death in Star Trek, I think, carries a weight when you have fond characters you lose and it, it, it does build a, a real consequence around it. Um, but man, just, just like, squandered opportunities, man. And, you know, it's the same shit with the Vidians. And I think ultimately it's the same shit with the Kazon. You know, you, you got something that seemed a little gimmicky at first. And by the end of the journey, you've fleshed them into fully realized Star Trek set pieces. And you just drop them on the floor and walk away from them for no clear reason to me. And it's the curse of Voyager, I think, just that that failed achievement, that squandered opportunity. Speaking of failed achievements and squattered opportunities, let's talk about the shit show that is the planet scenes. Oh, you mean uh, Land of the Lost? <laughs> you, got, you remember that TV show? It was like, uh, I don't know, Saturday morning, whatever, and there was like a Ford Explorer that gets sucked off to Jurassic. Well, no, that's that's actually Jurassic Park. It's it's some sort of like family <laughs> suburban that gets no, thrown yeah, back right. in time. Yeah, and they talk about how they can't take the car anywhere because they keep running out of gas. I fucking love that show. It's uh it's another dinosaur uh moment for Voyager with uh, animatronics only instead of these ones yelling not the mama they're brandishing dangerous crystal swords and I don't know why the dinosaurs were after the the family but uh yeah this this Voyager uh planet side situations I don't think any better in plot the uh it, it's it's delightful though and in, in- you know, they're here once again trapped in sunny Southern California, and it's the same hillsides and caves that we've seen in like a half dozen other episodes in just the past season. And it's this this planet that the crew has been left on, and what we get is first the most disappointing end to a character on this episode, which is saying something considering how Lon Suter dies. I w- even before that, I, I want to talk about a, a couple things going on here. The crew just having freshly gotten its ass kicked by yet another uh, hostile raiding party. Keep in mind, you know, Voyager got its ass handed to it when the Vidians attacked the ship in uh, Deathlock. Uh, I- I'm going to go ahead and scold Tuvok again for being so ill prepared that Voyager keeps getting boarded. And it shit pushed in over and over again. They get beamed down to the. No, they didn't get beamed down. They got dropped on the planet when they pulled that thirty-seven stock footage of the Voyager landing planet side. And they get shoved out the door. You've got injured crewmen all over the face. I don't know if you saw the one Asian guy walking with it. He had just put like chocolate pudding slathered all over his face, and I guess that was supposed to be injuries or whatever. Right. Well, let it soak in. Like this is the poor planning on Janeway. There's no medical treatment here other than Kess. You've got a crew of how many hundred? Three hundred? Uh, I think it's actually 151 or 148. 
And nobody here has any medical training except for Kess. Maybe the the hotshot pilot who would have never had any business being in sickbay in the first part. Without your hologram doctor, you were completely doctorless. And I think the poor planning on behalf of Janeway and the rest of the bridge crew is fully realized here. It's like, wow, we've really not done anything to improve our situation at all. Um, and yeah, they're, they're scavenging the planet side, looking for, uh, shelter food and eventually some weapons. Uh, and you get this line out of Chakotay. That's just like, <laughs> uh, Hey guys, don't pressure yourself too hard. Um, sweating wastes water. Shut the fuck up, Chakotay. You waste ships. This is now the second time in a <laughs> row. First, you wasted your Maquis ship. Now, because of you specifically, we have wasted Voyager. You've got no room. You and Janeway specifically have no room to try and lecture anybody uh, stuck on this fucking planet's surface. And I want to point out here, they're, you know, they're in a lot of daylight. These uniforms look fucking terrible. And I know I keep circling back and I know there's a lot of people out there that really like the Voyager jumpsuits, but with the command badges pulled off, like they just look fucking cheap and shitty and terrible. Yeah. Something about the badges being missing really for whatever reason sets, sets my brain off to looking at it. Like uh, something wrong about this. What is wrong with this? But uh, let's, let's get to let's. Yes. yes. So you've got, I want to leave. I want go take this. This is such a multifaceted shit cake, okay? You've got Neelix, who is not Starfleet and not formally part of the crew as he is not wearing a uniform, and he has been charged with taking Starfleet officers off to go scavenge for whatever. This drifting space cat survivalist jack-of-all-trades, along with Hogan who at this point has had some pretty considerable screen time over the past season, right? And I would say is a front runner for the most recognizable secondary cast member in the crew. And they find a big pile of bones in front of a cave. And Hogan's looking at it like, oh shit, that looks dangerous as fuck. And Neelix is like, snarf, snarf, snarf. Oh, look at this. We can take these dead humanoid bones that have been picked clean and turned leg bones into clubs, which alternatively could have been accomplished by picking up fucking sticks and rocks. But no, Neelix wants to be morbid and use, uh, you know, humanoid remains as this. It's very clearly that something bad lives in this cave, and this is where it comes and shits or pukes out the people it has eaten And this is like a danger zone, right? And Hogan's just like, man, like, do you want all of this stuff? And Neelix is like, yes, collect it all. And then Neelix does what Neelix does best. And that is wander off and put people in incredible danger, whether it's himself or the people around him. And lo and behold, while Neelix wanders off to go answer someone's question, while Hogan's standing at the mouth of uh, Death Cave, Uh, And we see the camera rush towards Hogan. Suddenly, Hogan scream. Neelix run back up there with uh, no sign of him. I I think we need to reemphasize what you've just said. Neelix literally says. 
hey, this probably means there's something dangerous in the cave. I'm going to leave you here alone to gather up these bones, a clear indication that there might be something dangerous in this cave by yourself. Check back with you in a little bit. Good luck. Flashback to me saying that Neelix is intentionally sabotaging the crew of Voyager for his own personal lulls. Like, there's a scene right after this where he's like, it's my fault. And Stevie looked and, and said, yes, it is your fault, you stupid space cat, you filthy fuck. Yes, you got Hogan killed. You you left him there to die in front of an obvious trap. Neelix took Hogan by the hand to a section of floor where there is a big X painted. <laughs> yes. And hovering over the hovering over the X is a grand piano being held by some dental floss. And Hogan's looking up at this piano like, dude, I don't know about this. And Neelix looks at the camera, does troll face, pats Hogan on the back and then skips off. I wouldn't say Hogan's my favorite character by any stretch, but. You know, they're so picky and choosy about killing people in Voyager. And you jump back to the episode Alliances where we had to fabricate someone who never mattered, who never existed. The 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 old mining buddy that Chakotay had and have him die. And that's what gets uh, Hogan and Jonas all set off about, you know, Janeway's command style. But you just fabricate someone out of nowhere to act as a catalyst for basically an entire episode. And then here you've got Jonas that you've built up to, you know, a recognizable named character and you just squander it on such a bullshit red shirt death. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why did you waste Hogan on this? Like what? what you got tons of extras all over the place. You could have put any other person. Fuck, another extra gets it later on the episode. Like, yeah, at random. Uh a, a dude with the worst fucking haircut I've ever seen on Star Trek. I call that guy spear throwing science dude. <laughs> um, but it just, yeah, Hogan's death is fucking terrible. So they uh, scour the caves and all they can find of Hogan is his spit up, torn and bloody uniform. And Janeway proceeds to give uh one of her world famous hypocritical speeches where she starts she gets like hostile with the crew about you know no more splitting up no more you know these caves are completely off limits i don't want anybody near them and this will not be this will be the last death in a very very long time so help me god rar you know i'm not losing any more people here um you know you, you you better listen to me and and shape up guys and it's like what this is your fault again that for the second time in three se- in two seasons your choices the the worst choice possible blowing up the caretaker station walking into seska's very obvious trap you have stranded this crew helpless and fucked up and at the mercy of the elements around it and then you're going to try and take the self-righteous pivot and and spit back at the crew with fire and brimstone like someone should have just busted her over the head with a giant rock and just killed her there flat and been like you know what 
she needs we're to better go. Off. Yeah, we're good. Uh, there's only so many times we can let her put us directly in harm's way and expect us to fall in line, click our heels together and say, sir, yes, sir. Well, they don't do that. And instead, they continue to try and survive on the planet. And that's when they meet the locals. Now, these aliens, I describe them as um, cavemen with scurvy. Yeah, that would be the way I would describe them. They've just they have the standard Star Trek, like I'm going to have some fucked up shit on my face to prove that I'm an alien. I got kind of a Nausicaan feel from them. The dudes who knife yeah. the cards back. Yeah, kind of like a Nausicaan look, except they they have this skin tint that makes it appear that they need to eat an orange. They're jaundiced a little bit. They're, and they're jaundiced. Out- I, I spent a long time thinking about what the hell these outfits look like. Ultimately, they're wearing a patchwork of like microfiber Swifter dry mops. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, they can Swiffer the shit out of a floor. Oh, like, yeah. If you've got hardwood floors, you want one of these guys by. Um, I will say in defense of the planet side scenes, it does have a, a straight up laugh out loud moment. When Are we Chicote talking about Chicote? Yes. <laughs> so they're, they're trying to like start a fire and they cut over to Chicote going at a piece of wood with another piece of wood in the classic way you try and start a fire if you're a boy scout. And he's not doing very well. He's frustrated and he throws it down and straight up says, here you are stuck on this deserted planet with the only Indian in the galaxy who can't start a fire by rubbing two pieces of wood together. (laughs) It was fucking that's that's the standout moment of Chakotay potentially for this whole season is that self-awareness, self-deprecating humor. Uh, I wasn't good at this when I was a boy, and I'm not good at it now. (laughs) And joking aside, you know, here we have flustered Chakotay, who is not calm and rational and reflective. It's just him lashing out in anger at a situation. Uh, And he's interesting and he's good. And you're like, this guy feels like a real dude. And, uh, you know, I think the situation and it sucks because they this whole episode completely divorces itself from the fact that Janeway and Chakotay willingly walked into this. And, you know, again, Janeway, again, who has exposed the crew to a second catastrophe, you know, she said to uh, Chakotay point blank, like, uh, you know, the entire crew has your back on this. What is very obviously a trap and we'll all go along with you. And, and we all got your back. Like the crew should be so stank at the two of them. And, Chakotay, you know, and we can say, all right, part of his frustration in this, yeah, should absolutely be that he has brought this all on, um, you know, Voyager with his own poor decision making. But they never reflect on it. Janeway, Chakotay, neither of them are like, man, we really fucked up with this, huh? Yeah, they they just don't. There's that's their. I don't know how to describe it aside. They just uh, don't have the self-awareness to sort of look behind them a little bit at their decisions. It's like they try and completely just sweep it under the rug. The writers are just like, well, you know, we don't want there to be any animosity while people are dying left and right and worms are eating dudes. And and it's just a gruesome, miserable planet of 
volcanic explosions, hostile cave people, and dinosaurs. The arc on the planet is the most stereotypical Star Trek paint-by-numbers shit you could possibly think. The locals are straight-up cavemen who have difficulty understanding or or communicating with the Starfleet people and are hostile to them. Some extras get eaten by space monsters. That look terrible. That look absolutely like shit. Uh, For a second time, Hogan's death being the first Neelix wander off and cause a problem moment. The second being when Neelix wanders off and Kess goes to like, be like, Hey, don't wander off. And then Kess gets kidnapped because she's chasing Neelix who has wandered off. That is correct. (laughs) That's two in one episode, man. Put a leash on this motherfucker. And then ultimately there's a heroic moment where Chakotay is able to save one of the locals. And that of course brings peace and understanding between the cavemen and the Starfleet people as they try to escape a volcanic explosion. It's everything ends fine. Um, It's paint by numbers. It's predictable. And the only two standout moments to me are Chakotay making fun of himself. And the fact that your friend and mine, smoldering catcher guy, gets his first line. Did you catch it? Did you see it? Did you see the magnificent acting that he did? No, what's it? Does he talk? I can't believe... How did you miss it? <laughs> Dude, How did I'm you face, miss this moment? Without the umpire vest, I cannot recognize this guy in the lineup. I, Apparently not. I always see him. I always point him out and you're like, what? Yeah. Yes. For the first time he gets a line. So remember when they're talking about who can run fast and fucking ha- try hard Harry and, and Bellana are like, I, Bellana's like, I was on the decathlon team before I dropped out of the academy. My coach was so disappointed. And then they cut over. Exploring catcher guy, he raises his hand and he says, "Yeah." <laughs> was that That's really smoldering it. catcher? That he, was smoldering catcher guy. Did he lose a bunch of weight at some point? Because that I thought smoldering catcher was a little bit more beefy. You know, maybe it was the angle, uh, but that was smoldering catcher guy. That was absolutely him, one hundred percent. It's it's his first speaking moment on the show, and he says. Yeah. He doesn't get a moment to like, he didn't get the background line of, I was in the decathlon team in the Academy. Like we don't get to know anything about him. He would have been perfect. He would have been a perfect pick to put in the Hogan death spot. I mean, yeah, obviously. I mean, someone you've seen in the background and then he just goes out like that. Not someone we really know. Like, like Hogan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, God, what a waste. You find out that, uh, Tuvok taught archery at the Vulcan science Academy. Oh, that was pretty funny too. Cause he, he's like, Hey, look, uh, we made weapons. And, uh, Chakotay's like, uh, I hope you didn't just assume I know how to use a bow and arrow because I'm Indian. And Tuvok's like, uh, no, actually you got a club. This bow and arrow. <laughs> this is for me. <laughs> it's put away, like sh- put away your outrage. Chakotay. I did. I did like the, the, the rather consistent dunking that everybody does on Chakotay being a terrible survivalist and stereotypical. I, I really like that though. Like, you know, if there's one thing you can take away from tattoo, it's that Chakotay has had a lot of exposure to this roughing it wilderness lifestyle. Right. Right. And the fact he just flat out sucks at it 
in a world of the enlightened future where everybody has the time to be good at everything. Him just having this fatal flaw of, I should be able to do this, and I'm not, uh, I think is good character depth for him. Um, at a certain point, like you said, uh, there's a showdown with the cavemen. The cavemen chase off a Voyager crew who retreats into the caves where Hogan died, which have been declared off limits. They go in, um, cave people start lighting fires, trying to smoke them out. They press in deeper. You get some extended shots of the tunnel worm that has been eating the crew members, and it looks fucking awful. And it is a lot of of screen time for this thing. And of course, there's this rickety bridge around the outside of the cave wall that they're going to have to cross to get past it. Um, one of the crew guys that you say has a terrible haircut falls in and gets eaten like what a what a bad way to die yeah <laughs> you know I mean, there you are i think you de- i think you deserve to die for that haircut though your I mean, space this... dude you know you're not wearing a, a gold shirt and just like uh yesterday everything was cool you're on a ship and then today you fell in and a worm bit you and ate you in one gulp like that's hey, pretty if you, crappy if you don't want to get eaten by a space worm don't, don't cut your up. hair by putting a bowl on your head and join starfleet like he had a straight up like Beatles haircut. If it was done by a blind person, it was just so astonishingly bad. I couldn't stop looking at it and he got eaten. And I'm like, good, good. You deserve that. And also they don't even got you for a reason. They don't even need to go through the cave. Like that's the other part is that dude dies right out the other entrance anyway. Yeah. It doesn't matter. uh, Janeway shows up and they, they distract the cavemen away with their best runners. And then like uh, Janeway and Kim and Bellana just, kick all the fires out and call the crew to come out in classic like 90s tv this cave worm that moves like 100 miles an hour all of a sudden can't catch anybody and just kind of gallops as everybody sprints out of the way to safety stupid whatever yeah this this planet side stuff is complete garbage i don't want to talk about it anymore uh back up in space paris's little attack on voyager works out he, you know, sticks around some blind spots and uh, the Talaxians plus um, Tom and the shuttlecraft are able to take some phasers offline. And now Tom's plan goes into effect because as they order um, the backup phasers online, something in the system, it's basically they took a potato and shoved it up the tailpipe. Uh, something backfires in Voyager in what becomes a very, very confusing turn of events. They go to fire on the shuttlecraft with these auxiliary phasers. Like I said, Lon was able to cross some wire somewhere. And what looks like a static sizzle envelops Voyager. And they cut back to an interior shot and everybody is moaning and groaning there is smoke wafting in the air seska looks like she's just been in a car accident hears her baby crying and staggers off to janeway's ready room to her baby which is wailing and this is pretty fucked up now because whatever happened essentially they're they're saying electricity shot out from every panel on the ship and and electrocuted everybody which probably includes this baby. This baby just got zapped. Well, I th- I thought it was that it was a surge large enough to to detonate all of the Starfleet regulation IEDs that are in all the panels. So like Tom knew 
I got to trigger this because these Kazon dopes don't understand that the worst place to be near in an emergency is a Starfleet Elkar's panel. And therefore, that's what Seska dies of. Seska died of of IED uh, shards or whatever. And the baby's just crying because there's noise. You know, you, you obviously know that. I mean, yeah, you know, and, and I get the joke and. Certainly, had they shown an interior shot of stuff blowing up, you know, I could get on board with it. But really, all you see from the outside is just like electricity sizzling the ship. And then they cut inside and you just see everybody wrecked. And And you see a lot of stuff blown up, though. I mean, I understand they don't show the panel exploding in Seska's face, but I felt like they did enough that that's what I interpreted, that she took a panel. I figured that everybody got like wharf electricity shock, you know, like where wharf's like, and then they just draw Raiden electricity all over them. And it's such a. I, I can't really wrap my head around it. Seska limps off. She goes to grab her child. She collapses. Then Maj Kulla comes in behind her, checks her pulse, determines that she's dead, picks up the baby. And then he tells everybody on the ship to evacuate ship for some reason, because two Buster Talaxian ships and Tom Paris are buzzing around outside. Well, they they get notified they're being boarded by the Talaxians. Uh, they don't say how many. It does get that wrap it up, Charlie. We got to get this episode yeah, over man, with look, feel to it. Like I'm, they could have said, like, there's 200 Talaxians or something like that, which would have clearly outnumbered them. That would have been something. Dude, I'm going in the trenches on this one. I, I cannot accept it. This is a real fucking Jerry moment here. OK, it is. You jump back to maneuvers. Was it maneuvers where? Yeah, maneuvers where uh, where Chakotay ends up on the planet with uh, Nog. I don't know if that was maneuvers, but we certainly remember the episode. And the whole point of that episode is that in Kazon culture, you go till you're dead. And even if it's an unwinnable situation, you fight and you go down swinging. So these guys willing to bail on the biggest trophy in the Delta Quadrant, Voyager, because some scrub-ass Talaxians are boarding. Right. And Maj Kulla's like, tucking his tail between his legs and running off and all of his subordinates are tucking their tails and running off too. And nobody's like challenging him and saying, you know, you're a coward. I kill you for your honor. And now I'm in charge. Like this flies in the face of like some real heavy world building that they did. And the fact that everybody else in the crew seems to be alive and able to move except for Seska, who is the best character in Voyager uh, to become the second major tragic death of this goddamn episode right up there with Lon Suter. Like this is just some real bad storytelling. This is like the old DM for your campaign uh, handed off the game to someone who used to play. And the first thing that that new dungeon master is doing is killing off the two NPCs that made fun of him one time. I, you said it yourself when you said that this was Pillar's last hurrah. This is Jerry Taylor getting rid of the shit she didn't want to deal with anymore. She and the shit deal- she didn't want to deal with anymore was the good, interesting, deep glue that, you know, turned season two into something really enjoyable in my eyes. The half of season two that was watchable, you could directly tie 
to what they kill off in this episode. Like, if you eliminate the Seska episodes and Lon Suter's adventure, what's left of season two that was good? Not a lot. Some Vidian stuff, which you Some already Vidian wrote stuff, off. And a couple Doctor moments. Like, that's that's it. So, you're right. This is the new G- DM taking over. And she's killing off all the shit that isn't her creation. So she didn't want to continue it. So so the mystery red sizzle that only seems to kill Seska for whatever reason, Seska, who I have to assume, by the way, was sitting in like, you know, the captain or the co-captain's chair, which only has one dinky console between them. So I would say even if you're going to go with the, the Federation console bomb theory, unless she was like snuggling it, I don't see any reason why she would have died. Uh, the Kazon pivot in the complete opposite direction that we have been led to believe that their uh, machismo honor would allow them to flee a fight. Uh, Talaxians raid the ship. Paris gets back at the helm. They fly back over to land of the lost. And for some fucking reason, decide that they're going to land the ship in the planet again, while volcanoes are blowing up rather than just start scanning the surface and beaming crew directly onto the ship. So, okay. As much as Seska's death and Suter's death were things that are going to hurt the show long term, in my opinion, the way that they perfunctorily closed the door at the end of the episode on both of them was even more disrespectful to me. Because once they get everybody on board, although no one is allowed to get a shower, so everybody's still got that got that that Southern California grime on them. Um, they have this real short scene in sick bay where they're like, yep, these two motherfuckers are super dead. We got this body laid out over here. It's Mr. Suter. Tuvok's going to say, Hey man, hope you have peace and death. And then Seska's over here. Chikote's is going to roll the blanket over her face. And that's that. It's just like, this is literally, Hey, just in case you thought for some reason, these guys weren't dead. Let me show you real quick. They're really dead. Don't expect them to come back. All right. See ya. I fucking hated it. And I know you said that, you know, Seska manages to come back again at some point. And I'll look forward to however the hell that happens. I'm sure it's going to be some pre-recorded message in a booby trap to later thwart him. But uh, yeah, it's fucking wrong. <laughs> it's a real. Oh, yeah. See, and that that's going to be, you know, Jerry Taylor's depth of her storytelling is something I just offhandedly guessed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's so beautiful. You just take everything I liked about season two and just fucking put an axe in it. Like it's it's very clearly just a exactly what you said. We are going to make sure that these characters are dead and you can never have these things back that you wanted, no matter how bad you want it. And uh, it's going to be the Jerry show from here out. So let's you know, let's let's do a body count here for season two. Jonas who was comical, but, uh, you know, whatever. He had some stuff going on. Hogan, Seska, Lon Suter, all of the Vidians, all of the Kazon, and ergo Maj Kulla, who had really grown on me by the end, too. Same. All stuff just left in the fucking wind. Like, what a waste. And I know the Borg are coming, and it's like... I really feel like this is a turning point for the show that 
I don't know if there was a lot of hate. You know, we talked about towards season two, some of the clunkers out there that maybe there was just this echo chamber and this group think of, you know, we can do no wrong and all this garbage we're making is just awesome and people are going to eat it up with a spoon. And they started to see like some of the ratings drop off. And we're like, oh, shit, we got to start making changes or what? But they made all the wrong ones. <laughs> I feel like they're. They're making this decision like we tried the Voyager thing, we tried the unexplored we, we tried to do too much new and the viewers don't like new and they want traditional star trek and we're gonna break out the borg and romulans and all this other stuff i've heard about and we're gonna get back into traditional alpha quadrant shit and the delta quadrant's basically a failed experiment we're not gonna caretake or escape out of here but we're gonna go back to basics and all this experimental uh, franchise specific stuff is going to go away. And uh, even though at this point we've, we've pulled it all out of the trash and made it, you know, good it, you know, fuck it, cut it. And, and we need to start making money and get advertising up. I mean, I mean, I think the theory of the crime you're putting out there, it could be right that they are panicking uh, in light of dropping ratings. I think it's, it's simpler than that though. I think this is that the change in the guard is that somebody wants to do it their way and they don't want to be saddled with ongoing storylines of shit that they didn't create. It's like, do you, do you ever watch Doctor Who? They do the shit no. all the time. They do the shit all the time when there's a new showrunner. They basically flush everything from the prior showrunner out the to- at the at the fucking airlock. And that's what's up. Martha Hackett seemed pretty stank about like, you know, and she's careful the way she words the stuff in these uh, entries or whatever in um, memory alpha, but I I don't get it. And switching back into in character, kind of the cherry on the top of this episode is by the end of it. Again, there is no personal accountability by Janeway or Tuvok for the rampant loss and carnage that they have put the ship through for ultimately something that was not even to uh, Chakotay's baby. Never at any point does Chakotay turn to the crew and say, listen, we just went through some real shit. We lost a lot of good people. And, uh, you know, I want to say thank you to all of you guys for, for backing me on this. I ultimately it was a mistake. Uh, but it means a lot to me that you were willing to go through hell uh, in support of me and you know it makes me appreciate my family here and blah 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 feel good stuff none of that dude dude they don't even acknowledge the baby like the baby gets taken off by Kula, and at no point does anyone tell chakotay or anyone else the baby wasn't yours you don't they even just... get a reaction video you, you don't not... even you don't even see the doctor be like oh you'll be happy to know that uh that's not your child after all how how hey, good would have it been if if you know Chakotay had a chance to snatch the baby up, knowing it's not his, feeling guilty that you know all this shit went down, feeling guilty about how you know Seska died because in the end he did have feelings for her, and knowing that you know he'd rather have this child grow up in civilization instead of some warmongering culture under Kula's supervision. I'm done with this. It's pissed me <laughs> off too much. I thought I kind of liked this episode. Like after I finished watching it. But when I really started looking at the notes and talking to you about it, there's so much 
bad shit going on here. Like, yeah, all the solid suitor stuff is pretty cool, but everything of real consequence that moves forward past this episode is just completely tainted. You are correct. Um, I think the solid suitor stuff is so good that I think it, it saves the episode from being like bottom five material. Yeah. But that's the best I can say about it is that because of that part of the episode, this avoids being total garbage and is instead merely bad. I wouldn't say it's total garbage from it watching like it's it's entertaining or whatever. It's the out of character behind the curtain stuff. The there's some real deep cut fuck yous and uh, it's infuriating. Fuck Jerry Taylor. <sighs> So what are we watching next week, brother? <sighs> All right, man. We're going to be moving on to season three, episode two, Flashback. Captain Janeway participates in a mind meld with Tuvok, reliving his experiences on the USS Excelsior under the command of Captain Sulu. Uh... I'm not looking forward to this one. You know why? You know why? Because they take perfectly good Trek and fuck it? Yes! In fact, they take my favorite Trek, Star Trek VI, the best Trek movie there is. My very favorite piece of Star Trek that has ever been created, and they fuck it into the dirt, Peter! That's what we're doing next week! Is this the 100th episode or something? No, this is the episode they did for Trek's... Or 50th anniversary or something? Yeah, this was the anniversary show, so... uh, We'll get into it when we talk about it, but... It was... I think it's worth talking about when we're talking about the episode, what was happening in Trek at the time, what DS9 did, and what Voyager did. And just let's just say I can't wait for all the wrong reasons. I feel like Jerry Taylor is trying to build a strip mall over a Indian burial ground. Well, if we wound up being overtaken by some kind of vengeful spirit, of Star Trek's past will know that that was true. Man, how good of a space ghost would Lon Suter be? <laughs> you got a rule of acquisition? No. Uh, All right. I'm, I'm too, <laughs> too butthurt right now. All right. They killed well, this- two of my favorite fucking characters in completely buster ways. They really did. They might as well they just... really did. Well, I'm not going to make that joke. All right, man. Thanks for listening to Vija Please, the hateful voice with the Delta Quadrant. We'll see you next week while I spurg out and hate everything that we do. <laughs> Peace. <laughs>